If you look at uh, the cross behind me, you see that beautiful Celtic cross. It was made by one of our charter members, Colonel Tom, who is now with the Lord. And it is beautiful. You could sit and stare at that and see uh, the, the artwork in it. You can appreciate the beauty of it, the gold behind it. In fact, that cross is beautiful, and some of you uh, ladies are in all likelihood today wearing crosses maybe every day of the week as jewelry. What makes that beautiful? Why could these things be beautiful when the cross itself and what took place on the cross was such a horrible, obscene thing? How could it become what it is today? That in virtually any Christian church throughout the world, you will see some form of the cross on the outside of the churches. Especially this time of year, you will see crosses in the yards and draped with uh, some kind of a colored material, usually purple at this time of year. What makes it beautiful when it was such an ugly thing? I want us to look first at the way God expressed what took place. And there's no way we can look at this without seeing the ugliness of what went on on the cross. Now, typically in your worship guides, I would have given you a very neat outline. That's how I prefer, and usually with most passages I do that, but there are sometimes passages that I think uh, the best way for us to understand them is simply to go through them verse by verse, and we will do that today to see how God presented this to us through the gospel of Mark. We're going to look at it simply one verse at a time, one or two. We we pick up with the 16th verse. It says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns, and set it on him. Just to break that down a little bit, they led him away. And we have seen that all throughout from the time he was arrested in the garden. He was led to here, to there, to each place. He, as we've talked about, allowed himself to be led. 
They couldn't have possibly pushed him or made him go to any of those places. But instead, he was led, as it says in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And here we see it coming true. Talks about the whole company of soldiers, a full cohort. You know how many that would have been if it was a full cohort? And most think that it might not have been a, a full company, but a great number. It, was, it would have been 600. So, in essence, when it says the, the whole company of soldiers were, uh, they called together that whole company, I mean, usually I've thought of it as being a, a few and maybe with a few more standing around, but I think the better way to think of it is you put both of our two services together and you crowd them in around an event going on, pressing, shouting, doing what it expresses is going on here, and that's the picture that we have of what took place that day. Now look at their actions. We're about to see how badly behaved they were. Why? Well, they thought they had a fake king on their hands. They didn't know who they had, evidently. They thought they had one who was a pretender, pretending to be a ruler and have authority, claiming a royal throne, they thought, and they treated him like he deserved nothing better than to be mocked. So they stripped him of his outer garments and they put a crown of thorns on him. Now botanists jump in here and they say that in that part of the world, that it, it has more of the prickly and thorn-bearing kinds of plants than virtually anywhere else. There are other places that are equivalent to that, but for some reason in that part of the world. So what kind of a plant it was or a bush, we don't know. But it doesn't really matter. What matters is the significance, the crown of thorns. Typically, we think of the crown part. But I want us to do a little biblical theology here. What was the significance? Go all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis 2 and 3. We see the fall of man. We see sin coming into the world. That's our problem. And then we see the curse. And a part of the curse says that thorns 
and thistles will inhabit this earth. And so here we have Jesus. Symbolically upon him. Bearing a sign of the curse. When that crown of thorns was put upon him. The curse that was on this world was being dealt with in this king. Verse 18 then. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Verse 19. Again and again they struck him on the head and with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him, and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. So we have the purple robe around him, beating him in the head area, spitting on him. Imagine answering someday to the Father for spitting in the face of his one and only son. That just shows us how darkened men's hearts can become and to what extreme things take place coming out of a darkened heart and how close one can be to the truth and still be blinded. Now, if we went over to a parallel passage, John 19, it says at this point, Pilate re-enters the scene. He brings Jesus before the crowd and says, Behold the man. Here is Pilate still saying, Look, there's, he hasn't done anything that deserves this but he brings them out, him out before him. Now back to Mark, verse 21. A certain man of Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now keep in mind that all through the Gospel of Mark, we have talked about how uh, typically in Mark, he lacks detail. It's the shortest of the Gospels. And... So usually there's not a lot of detail. You, you often have to go to the other Gospels in order to see details filled in. So when there are details, you've got to say, why did he include this in here? This seems like trivia. So Because we, we have a certain man from Cyrene. Tells where he's from. Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, evidently, exhaustion at this point set in. We, we know because we've been looking at this for a number of weeks now, what Jesus has been going through all in this relatively short period of time. But from the anguish leading up to uh, his betrayal and what went on in the garden and then going through the various trials and then all of the beatings, repeated beatings, he was hitting the head over and over again, as it just says, and now he's uh, trying to carry uh, the cross. And so 
evidently exhaustion had set in to the point where the soldiers, I, I doubt that it was out of mercy. I think it was probably just to get on with this, stop holding up the parade. And so they got Simon. And this says who he was to carry the cross for him. Who is this Simon? Well, we, it, it's impossible really for us to know a whole lot more about him, but is it possible that he was there for Passover? He gets pressed into service and ends up at the cross, and then perhaps, we don't know, perhaps he sees what has taken place, how Jesus handles it. He hears what Jesus says from the cross, and then, like the centurion and evidently others, At the foot of the cross, he comes to Jesus and to trust in him and becomes a believer. Now, you may say, well, are you just hoping that's the case? Well, I do hope that's the case. But here's why I wonder whether that might not have been the case. We can't prove it, but in the book of Acts, in Acts 11 and also in 13, it indicates that there were many Cyrenians who became Christians. How'd they hear? Could it have been one who was an eyewitness, this Simon who went back and spoke to his family and to others? And then we read over in Paul's letter to the Romans in the last chapter, he writes this, Greet Rufus, outstanding in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Evidently, his mother had rendered some service to Paul. Could that have been the one who's mentioned here. Remember where it says uh, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus? Could it have been him? The son of the Simon who was providentially there? I wouldn't put it past God for that to be a part of his plan. How he, even through this, where the soldiers thought they were in charge of everything, And God used that to spread the good news of the gospel to his family and to his area. Now we read down then in verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, There is a place over in the Holy Land where they believe they've identified. But in any case, the point is not just that it looked like a skull or anything like that, but it was a very public place, a place where they would crucify those who were condemned. We know other the thieves were crucified there. And they did it in a very public way so that many people would see it and would be warned by the crucifixions. Verse 23. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, that might have been prepared by some somebody with a sympathy for him, maybe one of the women 
to lessen the pain. That was not an unusual thing to do, to show mercy, to give them that which would work as kind of an anesthetic for them because of the great suffering that was going on. Notice also the myrrh. Where where have we seen that before? Again, doing our biblical theology, putting things together. One of the gifts that was brought to the Lord Jesus was myrrh. Pointing, I believe, providentially to this moment. He was born to die. But it says he did not take it. Hendrickson suggests the the reason why Jesus rejected it was probably because he wanted his mind to be clear when he spoke from the cross and because he wished to endure to the full pain what was in store for him in order to be his people's perfect substitute. He had some important things to say. These seven phrases, seven last words from the cross. But he had some important work to do. And it wasn't about him lessening the pain. And so he refused it. Verse 24. And they crucified I guess you can tell that struck me this week. That's why the title of this sermon is that. It's all that's said here. Such a simple phrase, brief phrase for such a profound act. Now we're going to spend all next Sunday talking about the meaning of his death, but here is the act itself. Why did Mark not talk about the nails going through his hands and his feet? Why did Mark not talk about what an awful scene it was, the pain that he was going through and the suffering? Why would he not flesh that out, so to speak, and bring out more detail so that we would see the passion of what he was going through? Could it be that under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, those things, while we ought to know them, they're not the point. The physical suffering was not the big point of the cross, as awful as it was, and we must never forget about all of that. But it was merely the location where the Father chose to do His work of redemption in the Son. And so, this is the essence of it. 
and they crucified him. Let's see what detail is given then. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Now that's fulfilling prophecy from Psalm 22. We're going to look at that more in a moment. Verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. That's about 9 a.m., counting from 6 a.m. in the morning, the way they would have counted. And then verse 26, the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now, this makes the point that Pilate did not agree with the Jewish accusations that he repeatedly, um, you know, as he repeatedly said, he's innocent. He's innocent of these things that you are saying. Pilate hated the Jews, and he was keenly aware that the Jews had just won a public victory over him. They got their way. He tried to let Jesus go. They said, crucify him. He gave in to the mob. And so he knew, and his pride was hurt. What would he do? He would get the last word. He would put this title up that they so despised. And so, because and using Pilate's pride, God providentially saw fit to have the title above Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, verse 28. Where is verse 28? Some of your Bibles, you may be saying, well, what's, what's the deal here? Why don't we see this? And then you look at the footnote. picks up with, uh, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was counted with the lawless ones. Now, this is one of those strange places in the scripture, um, in the Bible at least, where it seems like a phrase has crept into some texts. Now, one thing we need to note, because some would use this to attack the truth of the Bible and that kind of a thing, what we need to note is this, that uh, the church never claimed that the versification, in other words, the numbers of the verses, was inspired. That was put in at a later time, just so uh, those who were teaching and preaching, so it was easier to point out where you were in the text. So here we have this phrase that the more they studied it down through the centuries, the more they said, I, this probably wasn't in the original. So how, how did it creep in? Um, the, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was counted with the lawless ones. Well, it is likely that some translator or a copyist 
someone who is faithfully copying or um, just put a little note in there recognizing that that was uh, virtually a quote from Isaiah 53 down in verse 12. And so they just put that somewhere in the margin and then sometime another copyist copied that in there and eventually it worked its way into the text. Now, here's the thing. Does that mean the Bible's not accurate? No. All it means is that someone wrote a little commentary in there and it uh, got placed in, but it doesn't diminish what is said. If anything, it just points out something that is evident, truth. And so we really don't need to worry about uh, the veracity of Scripture in terms of this particular issue here. But we should recognize that that is indeed the fact. Here is another fulfillment of prophecy. Now, down in verse 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so uh, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And then you have the insults of those passing by. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him. Uh, among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe him. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Uh, I just simply want to point out here that the religious leaders and those who crucified Jesus were all hurling insults at him, the religious people, those who supposedly were seeking God, behaved as badly as those who made no pretense of it at all. Verse 33, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, what happened? Well, it's, it's clear that it's more than darkness from a thunderstorm. You think about what, what yesterday looked like outside, and it was just, you know, it wasn't a bright day like this. It was dark. But that, that wouldn't have even made a note in here. That's, that was just a darker day. We wouldn't say darkness had come over uh, South Carolina yesterday. I think instead you need to think of what it looked like last night outside. That's the kind of darkness that came over the land at that point. What was it? Well, I think we have the answer in the next verse, which would be at the end of whatever had taken place in the last three hours. I think that darkness was seen the judgment of God, what was taking place. Verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why would he say this? Probably many of you have heard 
sermons that use this saying from the cross. This is one of the seven last words from the cross. And I've heard these messages myself painting a a dramatic picture saying something like this was when the sin of his people was put on Jesus. But since the Father is perfectly holy and the sin was put on Jesus, because of the holiness of the Father, he cannot look on sin. And so, the preacher might say, the Father turned his back on Jesus and forsook him. And Jesus was separated from the Father. And that's why he asked that question. Now, that's a dramatic picture. And if that's what you have been taught, I have to tell you, I can't agree that that's what was taking place here. And I want to give you a couple of reasons why I simply cannot buy that theologically. The first reason is that I don't agree that the Father cannot look on sin. He is holy. He is perfectly holy. But somehow, He retains His holiness, but is fully aware of our sin, even in its detail. If He could not look on sin... He could never look at his children, even though we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but he sees our sin. Nor could he ever look at anyone here on this earth because there is sin everywhere. And so theologically, I think that's a problem to say that the Father, because of his holiness, cannot look on sin. We know that Jesus retained his perfect holiness and yet he walked among sinners. The second problem I have with that picture that is sometimes painted is theological and that is the father turning his back on Jesus and forsaking him. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit are one God. They cannot be separated. There is never a time there is a rift between them, nor can one forsake another. And so, we still have to answer the question, well, why did Jesus say that then? Well, we look at the content leads us back to why he would say it. He was pointing them to Psalm 22. You turn to Psalm 22. Very quickly, I want to point out what he was doing here, I am convinced. In the New Testament times, to cite opening words of a passage was a way of reminding the people who were listening of the whole passage. It would be like me saying in the context of wanting to comfort somebody 
the Lord is my shepherd. What would those who knew that psalm think? They would go on and say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down. And in other words, if you knew that psalm, it would bring you to that and it would take you through the words of that psalm. Jesus quoted the first verse from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. And so, those who heard that would think through the rest of the psalm, which was a very familiar psalm. They would have heard it many times. Many would have had it memorized. And that leads us to the... Let me me just point out some verses, too, that they would have immediately thought of. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. They would see Jesus and they would think of this psalm. Verse 7, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Exactly what was going on there. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Then down in verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. 13, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. That's, that's a picture of a crucifixion. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. A vivid description of what was going on and that Jesus was fulfilling Psalm 22. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Verse 19, they would eventually get to this. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. And most commentators believe that it's between verse 21 and 22 where Jesus died in terms of the descriptions from this psalm. So he's quoting the psalm, but that leads us to the second reason. Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? It was because that day when he was on the cross, when there were three hours of darkness, hell came to Calvary and Jesus descended into it. The Father poured out the wrath that we deserve. And he poured it out on his beloved son. Jesus felt during that time all of the pains of hell for all of the sins of all of his people for all time. No wonder he felt forsaken. The Father was there, but Jesus felt forsakenness. We've got to remember that. 
there's times where you will feel like he's not even there. He will not abandon you. He did it for all of us. And then in Mark it says, verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. He was born to die. And he did it for us. But it was not a defeat. One more aspect of Psalm 22. I told you he died between verse 21 and 22. If you look at the end of the psalm, if people would have recited in their own minds through the psalm, we get to the end and it says, Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. That's what it is. And that's why this horrid scene of the cross has become beautiful for us, his children. Let's bow together. We thank you. We simply thank you. There are no words, Lord. We give to you our lives, our hearts. You have done it. You did everything that was necessary for us as your children. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.